0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care.
1: Please go ahead thank you very much, Mary, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, the Understanding the Important Role of Adherence in the Medical Management of Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. We have over 877 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from many different regions and different uh, living situations in terms of urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Africa, Canada, India, Korea, Mexico, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and it's really a credit to each of you that you've spent the next hour with us for this program. Now, I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, there is an outline that our speakers have prepared, and there also is um, information about all the different collaborating organizations. Um, Now, there also is an evaluation form, and I would ask you to take a moment and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the programs you would like us to offer going forward in terms of just uh, topics and suggestions of topics that you'd like us to offer. I mean, it really, um, you are the best able to tell us what you'd like us to offer. Indeed, the whole concept of um, understanding adherence and its important role has been one that many of you have requested that we do a workshop on this topic, and so we very much try to implement your suggestions. Now, today's program was made possible through an educational grant from OSI Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and their interest in adherence. We have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is Chief Thoracic Oncology Service, the William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's Professor of Medicine, Weill Medical College of Cornell University. Dr. Chris is going to present an overview of managing cancer in the oncology outpatient setting, our evolving understanding of medication adherence, and its role in treating cancer and managing side effects. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Chris.
2: Oh, thank you, Karen. Uh, again, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this uh, issue uh, today because it is one of uh, growing importance, and actually, it's one that is a sign. Uh, that we are, are making uh, progress uh, in oncology. I say that because um, when I uh, began my career, uh, the treatment of patients with cancer, uh, both uh, for their uh, their disease and for um, adverse effects brought on by the cancer or cancer treatment, was almost al- was almost always in the hospital. Um, And it's been a very dramatic change uh, in the practice of oncology to see how much care uh, has shifted to the outpatient area from uh, inpatient. And and critical to that is uh, the uh, partnership of all the health professionals with patient and family to ensure that cancer therapy, cancer-supportive care, uh, that drugs to to treat cancer-related symptoms all those things are given uh, in the proper way as an outpatient uh, rather than as an inpatient where there is more uh, direct supervision. Um, I was a recent lecturer at our institution, and and it appears now that more than 75% of our total care activities are done in the outpatient area, and that's a very dramatic uh, change from uh, a few decades ago. I'm going to focus on on three groups of uh, uh, medications today. The first is anti-cancer medications. Uh, The second are supportive care medications and particularly uh, anti-medics and pain medicines. Uh, And the third, worth mentioning, are, I'll call them the antidotes to cancer therapy, and and I'll speak about them shortly. Um, Before we get into adherence and particularly adherence for oral medications, just a a quick word about how our uh, medicines uh, work, either both for uh, cancer treatment or to manage supportive uh, uh, care issues. And and it generally involves the um, administration of an agent that that gets into the bloodstream and by the uh, amount of the drug available, the drug finds its way to the receptor that is responsible for the activity we're trying to modify, uh, be it the the 5-HT3 receptor in emesis or be it the kit receptor in a GIST tumor. But we need to block that receptor, and we need to block it uh, completely, uh, effectively, and uh, over the long term. So what that means is we must um, get the drug in, and we must get the drug in at a level that will effectively block that receptor to receive the effect we want, and we must maintain that drug level. So that being the case, um, it is virtually it is necessary to understand the. Uh, pharmacodynamics uh, and the pharmacokinetics of an individual agent and to make sure drugs are appropriately given. And I think just one quick thing to review for the practitioners and also to bring up for any um, uh, patients on the phone is this idea of a a half-life of a drug. Um, It's a a way of measuring uh, how long a medicine would be present, let's say, in the bloodstream, uh, a surrogate for present at the site where we want it to be working. And uh, it's the the time, literally, when the concentration falls by half from from the peak that is achieved by giving the medicine. The the important thing about the the half-life, though, uh, is that, number one, uh, it, in essence, uh, tells you how often you have to give the medicine. So if the uh, half-life of a medicine is four hours, it really needs to be given every four hours to maintain that, that level. Uh, this is a bit of a simplification, but I think as a rule of thumb, I think it's pretty uh, workable. The second thing is that to obtain a uh, steady state of the drug, you must give it for five half-lives. So let's take a, a, a clear example like uh, uh, oxycodone, uh, oxycodone uh, acetaminophen, Percocet, Uh, a drug with a half-life of approximately four hours, you would need to give five uh, doses of that drug to see its effects, side effects as well as good effects. I think one very common uh, uh, scenario that we're faced with is a a person, let's say, is in pain. They take uh, two Percocet and they say, well, nothing happened or not enough happened. The effect was not good enough. And what we need to do is to remind ourselves that we're not going to see the full effect of that medication until we have those five half-lives, and also to educate uh, our patients and and their caregivers that to see the full effect, you need to um, give a drug four or five half-lives before uh, you can ascertain how effective that drug is or, or, or isn't. Um, A a couple words about pain medication. Uh, I think we're very fortunate now having so many different pain medications to uh, choose from, and I think uh, what I find very useful in my practice is to pick a few core medications for uh, the pain control. And probably for me, it it boils down to four medications, uh, either Percocet, Oxycodone, and uh, acetaminophen, uh, uh, morphine, Long-acting MS Contin or OxyContin, a long-acting form of oxycodone that, that pairs nicely with the Percocet. Um, uh, Fentanyl transdermal system uh, for that additional uh, way of giving uh, medications. So you need a short-acting, uh, a long-acting, and different, you know, long-acting medications. I keep also in reserve uh, diluted hydromorphone. Um, it appears, at least in my practice, to be the the drug causing less sedation, and somewhat causing the least uh, uh, nausea uh, uh, problems. Uh, So particularly for patients that have difficulty with nausea with pain medications, I think Dilaudid is probably my go-to drug. Um, It's very uh, clear that you need to give uh, these drugs at the proper interval. And just one um, message to patients and to caregivers, one thing I do is I Uh, always get into the habit of uh, writing the same prescription for, say, uh, Percocet or Vicodin. I write every prescription the same way. I generally do not write a prescription PRN. I advise the patient in situations where PRN use is appropriate to use a PRN, but I don't write that on the uh, prescription. I say, take this drug every four hours, and I I write it the, the same way every time, always four hours. I generally write the same number of tablets. Uh, and I make sure I, I give uh, a sufficient number of tablets because, uh, again, it, I know it varies from state to state, but it's somewhat difficult to uh, often find pain medications. It's somewhat difficult to call in refills over the phone, and, and having a sufficient supply to the patient uh, is very helpful for them. They have the drug. They don't have to worry that they're going to run out or run out on a, on a weekend or uh, where some calamity is going to happen. The other thing I do is I automatically write a, a laxative into that prescription. So I would write for uh, Percocet uh, 5-325, X number of hundreds of tablets appropriate to the patient's situation, two tablets every four hours with one tablet of Seneca. I write it right into the prescription so everybody is on the same page knowing the need for a laxative, uh, knowing the need for um, uh, taking the medication uh, on a regular basis. I think the second thing I would like to ma- mention about um, compliance is the use of antiemetics. There, um, we are blessed in that almost all of our antiemetics today need a single oral dose. The truth is, the antiemetics do not have to be given before the chemotherapy. It's kind of a convenient way to make sure they're given. It's sort of a um, Uh, a goalpost that you you have them all in by the time that the chemotherapy starts, but uh, it's not clear that it must be done that way. Uh, We know from clinical trials with a drug like cisplatin that the vomiting does not start for several hours after cisplatin. If you were to give your antimedics shortly after the drug was given, I think that would be perfectly fine as well. Generally, the drugs uh, can all be safely given once a day. Um, We know that oral and intravenous in these situations are, uh, equivalent, uh, and uh, I think many of us find that giving the drugs intravenously is very convenient for a practice setting, and I think more and more people now are giving an intravenous 5 ht 3 antagonist, palinocitron, the preferred agent in most guidelines at this point, uh, giving an intravenous uh, 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 a prepotent, phosphoprepotent. Uh, and, and giving a steroid either orally or intravenously. I think once a day dosing does it. I think the important thing also is that if you choose to use multiple day of prepadent orally or, and for dexamethasone, you need to explain to patients that the drug must be taken for several days uh, to obtain the maximal control because the truth is when you look at the vomiting control uh, problems we have right now. It's not on the day of chemotherapy. It's on days later. It's, off, it's not intuitive to the patient to take medicines if they've had excellent control of the nausea and vomiting over the whole time. Switching now to uh, anti-cancer drugs. Um, uh, we're blessed now in having a uh, number of medications that are extraordinarily effective, and I'll particularly look at the targeted therapies, imatinib for gist tumors and chronic myelogenous leukemia, Erlotinib and Frizotinib for uh, adenocarcinoma of the lung, and femorafinib now for BRAF-mutated uh, uplegate uh, melanoma. Um, a couple issues about these drugs, they, are, they need to be given continuously. There, there isn't a prescribed course of treatment really for any of these drugs. And we know from, uh, I'll call them experiments, but situations in individual patients, that if for some reason these drugs get stopped, their cancer starts to grow. Blessedly, until a resistance situation has occurred, if you restart the drugs, the cancer can shrink again. But it is very, very important to uh, give the dose of drug, try to give the uh, dose uh, that's most effective in controlling the cancer, and knowing to continue that drug uh, indefinitely. Uh, and, and stress to uh, patients the need uh, to continue uh, those drugs. I think more and more we're going to have oral agents. Uh, I know that they're preferred by by patients. Um, They're generally uh, much more uh, cost-effective, and we're going to see more and more of them. The last thing is that you uh, try as a first strategy, if you're having difficulty in taking the drugs, coming up with a uh, uh, supportive care strategy to um, uh, get rid of the problem. So, for example, you develop diarrhea from erlotinib, you would uh, have uh, um, Imodium. Uh, loperamide immediately available, I tell patients to buy it before they start the drug, to have it on their purse and have it in their purse, uh, and to use it uh, uh, as needed. So uh, I think to summarize, we've seen a a virtual uh, revolution in cancer care. We've seen cancer care go from an inpatient situation to one that is nearly always an outpatient situation. That has uh, made life so much better uh, for our patients. Uh, It does, however, shift some of the need to... uh, Uh, monitor, and uh, provide adequate care uh, to the patient and the caregivers. I think it's an important part of our job to write the scripts uh, that uh, educate our patients uh, to take the medication on time uh, at the right dosing interval and to continue taking it. Uh, And we need to uh, make sure we write the scripts and do our educational piece to get the effects from these uh, really wonderful drugs we have to treat, not only the adverse effects of cancer, the adverse effects of cancer therapy, but also the cancer themselves.
1: I want to thank you very much, Dr. Chris. Outstanding, uh, really, presentation and really setting the stage for how important um, the really concept of adherence is and, and where we've come, how far we've come, actually, in terms of treating cancer and side effect management as well. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Our, our next speaker um, is Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Ruddy. Um, And uh, Dr. Catherine Ruddy is an instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School, medical oncologist, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Ruddy is going to address research on adherence and clinical trials, what the research tells us about adherence, and recommended methods to talk to patients and caregivers about adherence. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Ruddy.
3: I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you all today. I uh, am a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber in Boston, and I specialize in treating breast cancer patients mostly women, but also some men. I've studied adherence in a large clinical trial of oral chemotherapy in patients over age 65 with breast cancer. I've also written a review about adherence and persistence with oral therapies for cancer, so this is an area of great interest for me that I think is very important for my patients. So I'll start by talking about research on adherence in clinical trials. Clinical trials are the research studies through which we improve cancer therapies by testing whether one treatment is more helpful than another, as as most of you know. These are essential to our ability to fight and cure more cancers. And as Dr. Chris discussed, oral therapies are becoming more and more common, and more and more clinical trials are involving these drugs. Today's clinical trials of cancer treatments often include not only oral chemotherapies, but also potentially oral hormonal therapies, particularly for hormonally sensitive cancers such as prostate or breast cancer, other oral non-chemotherapy drugs that kill cancer cells, which uh, are often termed targeted therapies if they're taking advantage of a specific characteristic of the cancer cell to halt growth of the cancer, and then oral medications, as Dr. Chris discussed, that prevent side effects from the drugs or, uh, or, or symptoms from the cancer, such as pain. Adherence is crucial to clinical trials because if patients who are on a clinical trial don't take their medications as instructed, the results of the trial may be inaccurate. For example, the trial may not show that a new drug is better than an old one if the participants in the trial didn't take many of the doses, and if the participants took more doses than they were supposed to, a given drug may appear to cause more side effects than it really would if taken as prescribed. Persistence refers to when patients keep taking a drug as long as prescribed, and Dr. Chris discussed this as well. Persistence clearly plays an important role in clinical trials as it's much more difficult to prove how long a, a, someone should take a particular drug. For example, it, whether tamoxifen should be taken for five versus ten years if the patients on a trial looking at that don't finish the recommended course of treatment on the trial. In some cases, when a drug is causing severe toxicity, non-adherence may be very appropriate, at least until a patient can get guidance from a health care provider. For example, I have several patients who are on a clinical trial of a new drug that is known to cause severe diarrhea. They're asked to stop taking the new drug immediately if uncontrollable diarrhea occurs and to wait to speak with me before they consider restarting it. It's not obviously not just the anti-cancer drugs for which adherence is important on clinical trials and otherwise. As Dr. Chris um, mentioned, adhering to medications that reduce side effects is often crucial to being able to receive effective cancer treatments. So if my patients aren't taking their anti-nausea or anti-constipation medications as directed during their first cycle of chemo, they're going to feel much worse and, feel, and be less physically and emotionally ready for their second cycle than if they had adhered to the recommended regimen of medications. With toxic drugs like chemotherapy, medicines that minimize side effects are extremely important, and they often don't work as well if doses are missed. Uh, As Dr. Chris mentioned, the the half-life is important. And, um, For example, if a patient skips a few scheduled doses of Zofran, an anti-nausea pill, she may become so nauseated that she's not going to be able to swallow the pill later. She may become weak and dangerously dehydrated. So a drug that's being tested in a clinical trial will appear excessively toxic if the patients enrolled in the trial don't take their anti-nausea medications uh, or anti medications as prescribed. So what does the research show us about adherence? Studies have shown that adherence rates for many chronic non-oncologic drug therapies are approximately 40 to 50 percent. So these include antihypertensives and uh, other medications. In a review of published articles with outcome including adherence or persistence or compliance or discontinuation with oral therapy in adult populations, my colleague Ann Partridge found that adherence rates to cancer therapies ranged from less than 20% in some studies to 100% in other studies. And much of the research on adherence in oncology has focused on anti-estrogen treatments such as tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors for breast cancer. And this is really because breast cancer is so common and because the anti-estrogen treatments are such an important part of therapy for the majority of our breast cancer patients. There are several challenges that complicate research on adherence. One is a lack of consistency in definitions. So some studies define adherence as when patients take more than 80% of their doses, others if the patients have to be taking 100% of the doses. So it's really difficult to combine results across studies to get a better idea of the big picture regarding adherence. And then there's the Hawthorne effect, which refers to the fact that people alter their behavior when they know they're being monitored. So adherence in a clinical trial is likely to be higher than it really would be in the real world. And also, there's no gold standard for measurement of adherence. There are many options, each of which has limitations. These options include asking patients how many doses they missed, in other words, self-report, counting the number of pills left in the bottle uh, at each visit, so the patient's asked to bring in the bottle. um, The number of pills that are left in there should represent the number of doses that were missed. Another option is measuring drug or metabolite levels in the blood. This only works for, cer- for certain medications, but it can be an indicator of whether a patient is taking the drug or not. And for some medicines, you can actually measure biologic endpoints or surrogate markers. For example, urine NT is a marker of bone turnover that has been used to monitor adherence to bone strengthening bisphosphonate drugs. Another option is to look at pharmacy and insurance database records. These can be assessed to determine whether there were times that a patient did not fill their scripts on time, suggesting that they missed certain doses. Uh, A more technologically advanced method of measuring adherence that's been used recently is called microelectronic monitoring system, or MEMS. And these are pill bottles that actually record every time they're opened, presumably representing each time a patient takes the drug. Another interesting technology is a sensor necklace and pills with tracer. These are specially designed pills that contain tiny magnets so that a magnetic sensor on a necklace that the patient wears can actually detect each time a magnetic pill passes through the esophagus. Despite all of these options, for obvious reasons, most data on adherence is self-reported. In clinical trials that aim to prevent breast cancer, tamoxifen has been found to be prematurely discontinued by about 20 to 50% of participants. And in clinical trials for women who've already had early-stage breast cancer, adjuvant hormonal therapy, which is either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, has been found to be prematurely discontinued by almost as many, 20 to 30% of participants. Adherence to aromatase inhibitors appears similar to adherence to tamoxifen in this setting. And off of a clinical trial, while approximately 80% of women are adherent to hormonal therapy in the first year of treatment, By the fourth year of treatment, this seems to drop to about 50%. In one study by Barron and colleagues, factors associated with stopping tamoxifen early included age and a history of antidepressant use. In another study by Kahn and colleagues, the proportion of patients who persisted with tamoxifen was lower for patients reporting that either they had less support than they needed, they had less than their desired role in decision-making, They made decisions about tamoxifen without doctor input, or they weren't told about the side effects of tamoxifen in advance. I think this is informative for our uh, clinical care and how to help patients be more adherent. In another study of the oral chemotherapy capecitabine in older women with early-stage breast cancer, those microelectronic monitoring caps were used to record each time a patient took capecitabine. And this study found that 25% of participants took fewer than 80% of expected doses. Age was not associated with adherence, and participants with node-negative disease and those who underwent mastectomy were less likely to be adherent. So all of this uh, goes to speak to the importance of talking to patients and caregivers about adherence. I find that talking to patients about adherence is not always easy. I try to ask every patient how many doses of their oral medications they're missing or taking at the wrong time, why they're missing doses, and what might help them miss fewer. In the last month, I've had some patients laugh out loud when I asked how often they miss a dose because they were so shocked that anyone ever misses any doses. Others report that they miss one or two doses a month, others one or two doses a week. And one patient replied that she had stopped taking her aromatase inhibitor six months before because of nausea and hadn't told anyone yet. So it's obviously very important to ask, and often the hardest thing about talking about adherence is simply remembering to do so in the middle of a busy clinic. As a clinician, I find that I most effectively communicate about adherence and about other topics when I imagine myself and my patients in their caregiver's shoes trying to understand what barriers they may face in adhering adhering to a given medication regimen. It's very important to involve caregivers in these conversations as they often have very valuable insights about potential solutions to improve adherence. So in conclusion, clinical trials that test whether one drug is better than another will only have accurate results about benefits and side effects if the patients who are participating in the trial take their medications as directed. And research shows that many patients are not adherent with their cancer treatments for a variety of reasons. Honest, open, supportive communication about adherence between patients, their caregivers, and healthcare providers is essential. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ruddy. Really, uh, just an outstanding presentation, and and really uh, very uh, factual. Lots of information. um, Really identifying many of the challenges, and uh, with lots of just very good information for everybody. So, thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A, and uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Um, Our next speaker. Is uh, Dr. Uh, Guadalupe, Alupe Palos. Dr. Palos is Clinical Research Manager, at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship. And Dr. Palos is going to address the psychosocial barriers to adherence, clinical and practical interventions to overcome them. Teaching patients and caregivers to plan ahead for prescription refills, travel, weekends, holidays, and special occasions. And I just want to say that Dr. Palos is a bit of her own health care team. She's a, an, an RN, a nurse, so she's a social worker, and a doctor of public health. So I just appreciate her perspective on this. And I'm going to turn the program over to Dr., Dr. Palos.
4: Thank you, Carolyn, for the opportunity to be involved in the discussion of patient or medication adherence, an important topic which impacts everyone participating in this call. Because of the increased use of oral therapies, as discussed by Dr. Chris and Dr. Ruddy, and the shift of care to the home, the patient is increasingly becoming responsible for following their scheduled medication regimen in their home, or as usually occurs, when the patient goes home, the patient's caregiver is responsible for uh, keeping track of all the scheduled medications. This becomes a major challenge um, for each of us in trying to work with our patients on um, and encouraging them to follow a medication plan when there are so many factors that influence their decision to, uh, to follow those regimens, as Dr. Ruddy described. Now, if we take this to ourselves, though, we know if we, when we're taking our own medications, there are factors that affect our adherence. There's factors such as our health beliefs and practices, and some of those may motivate us to follow the plan as carefully as possible. And yet other factors, such as our concerns of potential side effects or negative perceptions, um, including uh, concerns uh, and fears, we may not... Uh, follow the plans at all. And not all the factors contribute, that contribute to non adherence are easily understood. Let me share my experience with, a, with clinical research studies to evaluate the effectiveness and side effects of pain medication. In the studies that I was responsible for, every patient eligible for a pain study had to have a moderate level of pain and be on pain medications or would soon be on pain medication. My assumption was that because these patients were experiencing pain, Of course they would take their pain medications as prescribed, at the right time, the right dose, have no skipped doses, etc. To my surprise, that assumption was inaccurate. Even patients with moderate pain did not always adhere to their pain medication plan. The reasons varied, and the majority of the factors were reasonable. Some patients said they were taking too many medications and did not want to add another. Others were fearful of side effects or possible interactions with other medications used to control their diabetes or hypertension. And others reported that they did not have the pain that day, so why take the medication? This brief example demonstrates the complexity related to identifying and understanding the factors that influence medication behavior. I also learned a valuable lesson. I learned that taking time to educate the Patient and the family at the beginning of a new plan will help minimize the risks of patients not following their medication regimen. This was a proactive approach, and this can easily be integrated into diverse outpatient and clinical settings. And all of you on this call are being proactive to, the, uh, to adherence and learning more by listening and, um, and hearing uh, the discussions that, that we have. Dr. Chris gave an excellent overview of the role of adherence in managing cancer. His discussion increased our awareness of how critical adherence is in managing the side effects. Dr. Ruddy's discussion helped us understand the significant impact on patient adherence Uh, and how it influences participation in clinical trials. However, as demonstrated in my story, we recognize the struggle patients, their caregivers, or family members have in keeping keeping track of all the details related to complex medication regimens. But we also need to know how we as providers can support patients in achieving optimal adherence when being prescribed medications on a short-term or long-term basis. I will briefly address these questions in my discussion, I will also touch on strategies that patients and caregivers can use to be proactive in asking specific questions of their healthcare team about medications and how the family and providers may support the patient in meeting their scheduled times for taking their medications. Research such as that conducted by Dr. Ruddy indicate that there are multiple complex factors that contribute to barriers. For example, Dr. Ruddy's paper addressed the differences in providers' preferences, even to use the terms adherence or compliance. So given our limited time, we're not going to be able to address each type, but I will briefly focus on a few barriers. There's no doubt that one barrier may be something as simple as taking the lid off the prescription bottle. Some patients are not even able to do that. There can be even more complex barriers, such as how the how does a patient or their caregiver organize and maintain a schedule for taking 4, 8, or 10, or more pills every day? So a question many of you have, may have by now is, okay, we know about the barriers, but tell us how to deal with them so we can get our patients back on track for taking their meds as scheduled. Well, I will share some tips on how to overcome these barriers. And for those of you who wish to learn more about clinical interventions for increasing adherence, I would um, suggest that you go to the website of the Cochrane Collaboration um, and you'll be able to find some excellent material there. So briefly, barriers to adherence include factors such as provider-patient factors, such as patients not receiving adequate education or information about how to take medication, or um, the patient may not even remember. The provider may have done an excellent job, but if you ask the patient, they say, no, they didn't. I don't remember that. There may be, of course, financial barriers, such as having a co-payment tied to each medication. And by the way, if that's a problem, I would like to remind you that cancer care provides services in this area, so you may wish to contact them after the call. Patient-related factors also contribute, that contribute as barriers are their age, ability to read, or to even see the instructions, their mental health or cognitive status. Patients and caregivers may have concerns about side effects or interactions when taking um, different medications, especially uh, if a patient is an elder. And here I will use elder 65 years or older. And some meds may increase the risk of cognitive impairment in our older population. Psychosocial barriers, however, have been found to significantly contribute to, um, to non-adherence. Examples of psycho barriers include a patient's personal beliefs towards health, illness, and wellness the presence or absence of social support networks available to help the patient with adherence, or even the patient not having a sense of control over their condition and related treatment. And a crucial area often overlooked by us as providers but important to patients and family members are the cultural or religious beliefs practices, and traditions that may influence one's decision to take medications as scheduled or even take them at all. Now take a moment and ask yourself, have you encountered these types of challenges? And if so, how did you deal with them? Perhaps those of you who have successfully dealt with these barriers may wish to share your tips with the audience during our question and answer period. Your information may help others in the call. So first, as providers, we must remember to teach our patients that it is truly important to follow the schedule Uh, in the dose and the correct medication as prescribed. And different ways, Dr. Ruddy gave an excellent overview. And again, uh, you can set ex- uh, alarms on ele- electronic devices, your watch, your smartphone, your computer, or your iPad. If you're not a techie type person and prefer written aids, make a poster of your meds or ha- help the patient make a poster of the meds. Color code them to indicate the purpose. Note the time, the dose, and how to make- take the medication. Is it by mouth? Do they swallow? Does it dissolve? And- or other uh, routes of administration. There are also different ways to help the patient organize the medications. They can use pill containers by the day or by the week. The preferences, of course, the methods will depend on the preferences of the patient's now, some of you may be thinking, ah, oh, that seems like a, quite a bit of work, and yes, it is, but if it's done up front, it will minimize the risks of missed doses, incorrect meds being taken, or pills not being available when needed. Now, let's continue to tip two. Be aware that the barriers may change and increase over time, and particularly when the, when the disease is a chronic disease like cancer or some of the other diseases, diabetes and hypertension, so we must be creative in dealing with these obstacles. The main thing, though, is a major strategy, very important, is to maintain open and ongoing communication between the patient, the primary caregivers, and the patient's healthcare care team. And the team would include the physicians, the office staff, the pharmacists, and the invaluable pharmacy techs that um, also are able to provide some education. A third tip is to learn the importance of planning ahead of time whenever travel is scheduled. Travel can be a 40-minute drive to a patient's home, a daughter's home, or it can be a five-hour flight and 10 days out of state. So here are a few tips that you can give your patient. Remind them to carry a small carry-on bag with all the medications either stored in the prescription container or in their original bottles, depending on the length of the trip and the route of transportation. Keep a small index card in the family member's wallet as well as the patient's wallet at listing all the medications, their dosages, time to be taken, and how to take them. And on the back of that index card, you can ask the patient to write down the names and contact information of the physicians prescribing the medication, the pharmacy where the medications are obtained, and then include emergency information for each provider or pharmacy. Often, uh, the patient can even ask the physician to write a letter stating that he or she has prescribed the following medications, and they'll list the medications, and you can encourage the patient to make copies of the letter and give one to each primary caregiver. When patients are flying, remind them again that it's good to carry on um, their medications onto the plane and not to store it. Um, and they need to also remember to keep a schedule of when refills are due. This is very important and helps minimize the risk of being in another state or country and running out of medications. It's also helpful to ask the patients to communicate with their pharmacist, ask about the pharmacy's policies regarding refills, especially if they lose their meds or run out of meds while out of town. Some pharmacies will provide enough refills to last until they get back home and so or they can be reached by their um, the prescribing physician. And again, I can't say this enough, I think one of the most important lessons learned is to maintain regular and open communication. Um, as Dr. Ruddy gave the example of the patient who had uh, stopped taking her medication like six months ago and never said anything. So sometimes the patients feel guilty about saying that or reluctant um, to say anything because they, they love their provider, they don't want to hurt their feelings, so they're not going to you know, have that disclosure. So we need to ask point blank, have you been taking your medication? Is there any reason that you may not want to take your medication, and then that will help start opening the uh, conversation um, toward medication adherence. Remember, each individual is unique in their response to different medications, so the answers to any questions we ask are going to be tailored to meet the specific needs of the patient. In the last few moments in my summary, I would like to share just a few more practical tips. Now, I think as providers, what we can do is we can tailor our instructions on the learning preferences of a patient. Do they prefer written or verbal instructions? We can offer patient education counseling to help the patient and their family understand the schedule, the doses, the side effects, and other details. We can consider using reminder systems for uh, prescription refills, like a telephone call or, um, um, or a message left on the machine. We can also integrate creative ways to remind patients, such as computer-assisted patient monitoring or counseling. Remember, often the providers are not aware that the patients may not be keeping up with their medication regimen. So my colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and the suggestions you may have uh, for our patients and our caregivers and how to take their medications as scheduled. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. This concludes my remarks. Well, I want to thank
1: you very much, Dr. Talos, for just a very informative and outstanding presentation and really for providing some of those very practical tips to help um, when talking with patients um, or for people to think about in terms of uh, really um, to be able to take one's uh, pills on schedule, all the kind of obstacles get in the way and the ways to overcome them. And most importantly, your concluding remark is the need to individualize with each person what would best work for each, each patient, which... Um, is really a great challenge, so I thank you for that. Um, I know there 'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well and Our next speaker is uh, Patricia Spicer and Pat is an oncology social worker she 's a coordinator at cancer care and Pat is going to address the free psychosocial support services offered by cancer care and also um, support for patients to cope with the challenges of medication
5: adherence Pat. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Um, as you can hear from the prior presentations, the challenge of keeping up with taking medication can be difficult for both the patient and for the family. And while there are many rewards of- for staying on prescribed therapies, it can also present a great challenge. The complexity of treatments, medication costs, and side effects are some of the reasons that patients stray from taking their prescription regimens. Many people find themselves skipping doses or not taking uh, prescribed medication uh, as directed. Uh, Our prior presenters have touched on some of the uh, reasons, such as the fact that medication can be expensive and so people don't take the amount prescribed in order to save money. People sometimes just plain forget particularly uh, some of the older population uh, where they are not uh, as adherent and may have trouble remembering their doses. And sometimes people stop just because they feel good and don't feel that they need the medication at any, uh, any longer and would rather not be on a long-term regimen. There are a couple of things that can help you to stay on track, and that includes taking your medicine at the same time every day. Uh, using an alarm, a wrist alarm, to remind you that this is a time that you need to take your medication can be helpful putting a reminder um, on the medicine cabinet or the kitchen refrigerator uh, or wherever you keep your medication, or marking it on a kitchen calendar. If you keep it in a bathroom, put in a reminder on the mirror of the medicine cabinet. Using a pill sorter. These are simple. Uh, They're inexpensive and can be obtained in the local drugstore, and either a caregiver or the patient themselves can lay out a week or two-week supply, so that, and they are marked with the date so that you can remember to take one uh, at the appropriate time and day. Develop a buddy, uh, either a, another cancer patient or a family member who is going to remind you that you need to have your prescription refilled or that you need to be taking your medication or have you taken it today. And put reminders on your calendars or in your date books when you need to refill your prescription and do it a couple of days before they're due to run out. Also, talk with your pharmacist about the need, uh, the date to refill your prescription so you're well aware of it. If you were concerned about the cost of your medication and many of the drug companies that used to uh, provide uh, programs to help patients have discontinued their programs and the drugs have gone generic, cancer care could sometimes help. Through the Cancer Care Copayment Assistance Foundation, we offer uh, copay assistance with some of the diagnosis. And to find out more about it, you can contact Cancer Care Copay Assistance at 866-552-6729 or online at www.cancercarecopay.org. Cancer Care itself also provides help for uh, the cost of medication for women with breast cancer through a partnership with the Coleman Foundation. And you can contact us toll-free, 800-813-4673 or www.cancercare.org. If you are a caregiver and concerned or a patient and have questions or concerns, we also provide both online and telephone counseling, and you can contact us again by contacting the 1-800 number. Thank you, Carolyn. Well, thank you very much, Pat, for just really a wonderful presentation
1: and also for letting everyone know about all the services that um, can be accessed from Cancer Care for free. So thank you. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Mary to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're all ready to take your questions and um, let your questions begin. But we also, um, as Dr. Palos had said, we also welcome any of your recommendations, tips that you have found to be particularly helpful. In, in, uh, in, in with, it, with uh, adherence, with taking your pills on schedule, either healthcare professionals' recommendations who are on the call or people living with cancer themselves, things that you have found work and that you'd like to share with other people briefly so that they might be tips that others can use as well. So we're, we uh, welcome both questions and tips. And I'm going to now turn this over to Mary, who can explain to you how to queue up and uh, do um, either a question or a tip. Mary?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question or you would like to state a tip, please press star than 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, may press the pound key. For those of you on the web, you may submit your questions and tips by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Diane H. Um, Hi, I'm Diane. Thank you
4: for taking my question. I Apologize, I came in a little bit late, but my question is: I was on tamoxifen for a year um, right after my breast surgery, and I was just recently switched over to letrozole, L-E-T-R-O-Z-O-L-E, 2.5 milligrams. Is that, you know, because I basically didn't finish the tamoxifen? Is that a, a, I guess, a comparable? I'm I'm not quite sure why I was switched over. So.
1: That's an excellent question, Diane. I am going to ask Dr. Ruddy to address your question in a general way, and then I'm going to advise you to go back to your treating health care physician and ask more questions. But Dr. Ruddy, could you address that just because you have such expertise in this area?
3: Absolutely. Both tamoxifen and letrozole are what we think of as hormonal therapies. Um, so I don't know if you were on that part of the call, but um, I did talk somewhat about those, um, not in any great Um, not in any great detail, but they are both oral uh, drugs that work in a similar type of way against breast cancer, and they're both used, you know, after surgery to prevent breast cancer from coming back. Um, But I think it is a great suggestion to go back and, you know, readdress with your doctor exactly why the switch was made, but that is not an uncommon um, strategy. Thank
1: you. Okay, Our, our next question or tip. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: if you do have a question or a tip, please press star then one on your touch tone telephone.
1: So, we do have a question from one of our online participants, actually. Um, uh, the question is what about um, sort of uh, out of town caregivers? Um, how do they work with a pharmacist um, in a loved one's neighborhood to help the patient be adherent? Um, what services does the pharmacy provide?
4: Um, Dr. Palos, could you address that question? Certainly, and that's an excellent question. Long-distance caregiving is becoming much more common now because many times uh, families have perhaps a parent in one city and their children may be living in another city. It's a very, um, I, I believe, in developing a, a plan for for when you're a long-term caregiver can be very detailed and can take time at the beginning. But then um, you have all of that planned so you can refer to it over and over. The first thing you can do is uh, contact the ph- Well, get permission, of course, from the parent or, or the patient that you can contact their pharmacy. Contact the pharmacy, ask to speak to the pharmacist, explain that you're a long-term, uh, long-distance caregiver and who the patient is and what your concerns may be about the medication, when they take it, or interactions. And I have found that the pharmacists uh, are very willing to educate um, consumers about that. The second thing is, as I mentioned before, keep lists of every medication, the pharmacy where that medication is obtained, and the prescribing physician. The more detail you have like that, then the less likely you're going to be scrambling at the last moment, you know, trying to find all of that. And I would suggest keeping it in a notebook somewhere, so you can pull out when you don't need some items, say the medications are discontinued or they're changed, you can just add another page and, and have the new updates in there. So so those would be um, some of the ways that I would, I would begin, and then you can also ask for your, your social workers or your nurses to, to help you. If you're in a hospital setting, they certainly can help you um, set up the conversation and then to also communicate with the patient, I mean, with the pharmacist out in the community. Excellent. Thank you very much. And our next question.
1: Our next question comes from Donna S.
3: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, My question also, um, I'm a breast
4: cancer survivor, and I was on tamoxifen for two years and was recently taken off and put on aromasin, and um, it's great, it's not having any side effects, but I just wanted to understand what the difference was in the two.
1: Excellent question, Uh, and I'm going to ask Dr. Ruddy to address that. You see, Dr. Ruddy, people are aware of your expertise, and so we have these questions coming in. Dr. Ruddy?
3: Absolutely. So tamoxifen actually works by blocking the estrogen receptor, uh, where the aromacin, or the other name for that is exemestane, that's similar to the letrozole that the other caller was asking about. Um, those medicines work by blocking the production of estrogen. So they only work if you're either postmenopausal or if your ovaries are being suppressed at the same time. Tamoxifen works no matter what your menopausal status is. So both of those types, both the aromacin, other name, XMS Dane, and the tamoxin both work as anti-estrogen drugs. They work against breast cancers that are stimulated by estrogen. Um, and the reason that some physicians might switch from, might give you some, some time on the tamoxin and then switch to the aromatase inhibitor um, there are a variety of reasons for that. Some, for some people, it would be side effects on the tamoxin. For other people, it, it's because there is some evidence that doing that uh, and, and giving you some of the aromatase inhibitor is a more effective um, way to uh, fight the breast cancer.
1: Thank you. Um, our next question actually um, has to do with older adults and um, the special challenges that may be faced um, by older adults in, with who may have other health problems. And... Um, uh, I wondered if Dr. Chris could just address that. Um, that was an online participant uh, posed that question.
2: Yes, um, I, I think more and more uh, oncology uh, practitioners have been uh, uh, faced with a, uh, I'll call it, a steep learning curve on how to take care of uh, older persons with cancer. Um, the average age of uh, people with cancer in the United States now is over age 70. So this idea that it's a special situation, the truth is it's not. Treating people uh, under 70 is the special situation now, Uh, and the standard of care is trying to treat um, uh, people that are older. I I think the first thing, and it's probably comforting for all of us, is that, um, and I'm particularly familiar with the lung cancer research, that um, the results with treatment, uh, whether you're 75 or 55, are really the same. Uh, and I think that's been a very important uh, realization that you can do just as well uh, with advancing age. You can also receive the treatments. So I think all of the clinical trials have shown that um, you have uh, probably more of a chance of getting a side effect and more attention has to be devoted to managing side effects if you're receiving any kind of cancer therapy uh, with advancing age. Uh, the other important issue is that um, you the realization of other uh, problems that we face, and I think that was the uh, the problems that these patients face. Uh, For example, uh, so many drugs are uh, broken down in the kidneys, and many uh, older uh, persons have some slight effect on the kidneys. Uh, And and you need to be very uh, cognizant of that uh, in the dosing of the medication and often in the selecting of of that. The other important thing is that we can all learn uh, from uh, the uh, geriatricians that we work with and the, the geriatric literature. I am, am personally just immensely um, uh, struck by how powerful comorbid conditions are in overcall outcomes and, and the chance of, us, uh, of uh, having a problem with cancer therapy. Things like a fall, uh, things like um, uh, dementia, uh, things like a poor functional score measured by a um, Uh, Time get up and go test, for example, uh, are really predictive of patients that are at special risk. Um, One thing I could suggest to all the practitioners on the phone is to try to integrate into your practice uh, a way of of assessing this in a in a a practical way, something that works for you. Um, I've recently uh, put in the time get up and go test. And, and I must say I have been surprised that patients where I've written down their performance status as 80 or 90 percent, when I have them get a time get up and go, it's suddenly 20 seconds, which, which shows that a patient has impairment. Uh, and it just woke me up that that this was a very special situation. So this issue of um, other illnesses. Um, I'll I'll say complicating uh, the selection of cancer treatments and the delivery of cancer treatments is one that is only going to become more and more of an issue as years go on. We we need to pay attention to what the geriatricians have already learned. We need to integrate it into our oncology practices, and we need to make special um, uh, consideration when we find these comorbid conditions.
5: Uh, Carolyn, this is Pat. I'd kind of like to weigh in on this also. One of the things that practitioners need to look at when they're doing an assessment of the older patient is to ask about their living conditions. Do they live alone or is there someone that can look in on them, a friend, a neighbor, or a family member? And particularly if the caregiver happens to be long distance. So making sure that the patient has someone that can be supportive and check on medications. The other thing is doing an assessment of their physical abilities. People who also suffer from rheumatoid arthritis sometimes have trouble dealing with the, the caps on medications or the bubble packs to release the medication. So doing a complete assessment, assessment of their social uh, milieu is important as well.
2: If I could add one other thing. Yes, please I, do. Some- yes. That, um, you know, the things that we're doing here, they they really go to uh, issues for patients of all ages.
4: Uh, Mm
2: -hmm. Somebody that is debilitated by rheumatoid arthritis, you know, again, whether they're 45 or or 80, it it doesn't really matter. I think it's very, very important that we note those things and and put them into our our care plans. And the the medication, um, uh, access to medication, as it were, I think is a critical thing for many patients.
5: You know, that's an important point because sometimes we tend to look at it only from the the, uh, perspective of the older patient and there are younger patients who live on their own or don't have a good support system and they need that same kind of assessment and help. Exactly.
1: Such an important discussion, I have to say. And um, also, um, uh, Dr. Palos, what about the person who um, is the the long distance caregiver in this situation who really is trying to be helpful to um, an older adult or anyone who's really, um, we're we're actually broadening it from older adult to really anyone who's actually. dealing with adherence issues.
4: um, Any particular tips that you'd like to add to those you've already already given us? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, again, um, I can't emphasize enough the importance of communication. It's a lot of work trying to Um, develop relationships with the providers and with the pharmacists and other people involved in the healthcare team when you're in Chicago and someone is in Puerto Rico, for example. But I I can't say enough that if you put in the time at the beginning, that that's going to be the best strategy you can start with. You have that foundation, and then from there, as um, the status of the patient changes, you'll be able then to keep up with those changes because you have something to fall back on to remind you, oh, yes. They were on this before, um, and now they're on, um, you know, I see that they're having these problems. Um, so I, one of the things that, um, you know, telephone calls are very good. Um, I think, to the provider, the long-distance caller can, um, caregiver can, when they go to visit the patient, they can meet some of the other people that are in that support system. For, if they have it, they can meet the neighbors, they can meet um, the health aides that may be there, and then you know, develop again a relationship with them and let them know, you know, I'm available. Call me when you can. And then the other thing that um, um, I know that I was doing with uh, my uncle was just calling on a regular basis, either to speak to um, the aide that was working with him or his um, caregiver, and just letting them know that, you know, on, a, on Thursday evening at Nine o'clock they knew that I would call, and then they could keep a list of all the things that had been going on and what they wanted to talk about and then I could make a list of that, and so we would exchange and that was a very good solid way to to maintain that open communication uh, again, Carolyn this
5: is Pat some communities, uh, particularly churches or temples, have uh, RSVP programs where they will make phone calls to check on an older patient or a patient who is debilitated. And caregivers can research those programs in the community where uh, the patient is living. Uh, There are also uh, programs that offer uh, friendly visiting, um, very often through community groups, so that someone could drop by and then contact the long-distance caregiver. Um, Google is a good place to search for those if you have online access.
4: Carolyn, um, I, yes. Oh, yes, I have a question for Dr. Ruddy or for Dr. Chris. I really uh, appreciated uh, the comments made about, uh, you know, co- conducting some type of assessment of what uh, the patient needs are, and uh, you know, you gave a, a, Dr. Ruddy an excellent. Um, explanation of the changes and the differences in the medication now if patients wanted to bring up this these types of conversations with their physicians what would how would they initiate that because uh, i know many of the patients tell me oh i i i you know i don't want to offend my physician i don't want to ask those kinds of questions so you know if they don't ask about it i don't ask about it can you give some advice on that
2: well, I, I would hope that um, when you first uh, meet your doctor and, and team, that that you kind of lay out the ground rules. I think that would be my first piece of advice, saying, you know, um, I, I these are my expectations, and uh, and this is uh, what I'm. Uh, I hope that you're comfortable, you know, with with me, you know, asking these these kinds of questions, and and I think um, uh, it, it's it's important to to come to some kind of a meeting of the minds with your, or with your team when you have issues that, that just aren't being addressed. Um, one thing that helps, though, is to, to prioritize. Um, I, I have a, a form that I use in my office um, where I give it to every patient when they come in, and I ask them, you know, what, what are the things you want to discuss with your doctor today? Uh, I purposely only give three Spots to fill in, and I do that um, to make people um, focus in on the things that are most important to them, uh, to put that most important thing number one to make sure it gets discussed. And I, I think if you could um, focus, your, your doctor will greatly appreciate um, asking the most important question first uh, and, and, you know, trying to find those things that you really need need to be answered that day. And
3: I, I agree wholeheartedly with Dr. Chris. I think that um, really for the most part physicians are very eager to answer your questions and I have never been um, at all upset by any question any patient has ever asked me. I think, you know, opening the door to that communication through whatever, however you feel the most comfortable, I think a straightforward question uh, just, um, you know, if you, uh, about the medication and just saying I'm a little confused about this, could you help me? I think most, if not all, physicians would be very uh, eager to answer that question and to discuss to discuss anything with you that you'd like to talk about.
1: Excellent. I just want to thank all of you for this really extraordinary call. I, I realize that we have been, this, I have to say, of all the programs we've done on adherence, this has been the most remarkable. And um, I want to just to thank my, take my hat off to all of you. Um, I want to thank all of our participants who asked questions that have been enabled us to have this further discussion. I realized we could probably go on for the full day and probably tomorrow, and we probably will have to do many more programs on this very important topic. Um, I want to thank all of you for participating today. Um, I also want to remind you all to access the services at Cancer Care that Pat so eloquently described. Um, we are simply a telephone call away or visit our website. Most importantly, I don't want any of you, either as a healthcare professional or a patient or a caregiver, to feel that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of the community of support, and we are here to help you. I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect and have a
4: wonderful day.